With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. First Energy Stadium gets a new name. The players are back in Berea for phase one of the off-season workouts. OBJ has his Baltimore presser. And the process is coming to the NFL. Let's go. You're listening to What the Elf Was That Podcast, an irreverent analysis of the latest Cleveland Browns news and NFL news and all things football. What the Elf Was That Podcast is a part of the Fanatical Elves Network, a part of the Fans First Sports Network, and here is your host, Joel Cade. All right, everybody, let's go. Welcome back to the What the Elf Was That podcast. Got a pretty good show for you today. We're going to dive into this name change in Cleveland Brown Stadium and the possible rebuild. And as we mentioned before, phase one of the offseason workouts are starting. Uh, around the AFC North today, Obel, Odell Beckham Jr. has his Baltimore press conference. And by the way, if you missed that, you missed a doozy. But don't worry, we'll hit the highlights. And the Washington Commanders are selling. Dan Snyder is selling the Washington Commanders for $6 billion. All that coming up. But first, here we go. Cleveland Brown Stadium will be renamed excuse me, First Energy Stadium, currently uh, holding, the, holding the rights to the uh, stadium rights as First Energy. They have announced, along with the Cleveland Browns, that they will be changing the name. 
that they will both be mutually backing out of the agreement for naming rights to the stadium. And the Browns have announced that the stadium will return to the name Cleveland Browns Stadium. So yes, that's right. The factory of sadness is coming back. But let's hope that because of the 2020 playoff run and some of the good luck we've had this this uh, this time when it's been first energy stadium, that maybe the factory of sadness is truly dead, as Mike Polk Jr. has announced. And related news, it's been a big week for stadium news. Ken Pendergast of the Neotrans blog is reporting that Cleveland Brown Stadium will be rebuilt as a part of an overall effort to connect the North Coast Harbor to the downtown in the city of Cleveland. A part of the work will include a land bridge that would link downtown to the North Coast Harbor, which would also mean that the shoreway will have to be moved. This would be a major project that could possibly displace the Browns out of the North Coast Harbor for up to three Uno dos trace three football seasons in addition to all that berea training headquarters the browns training headquarters in berea will undergo major transformation meaning they will need to be training away from berea and locate relocate the day-to-day operations for up to possibly up to three seasons so that's a lot to take in in the news the stadium is going back to cleveland brown stadium And instead of building a brand new stadium, Neotrans is reporting that the stadium will be rebuilt. And what I gather from the article is that the stadium will essentially be torn down and a new stadium will be built on the same spot. The current foundation would stay in place, but the new stadium would incorporate elements of the old stadium in the foundation, maybe some of the support beams, and a new stadium will basically be rebuilt on the spot. In addition, there will be a whole transformation of that whole area of the North Coast, including multiple buildings, multiple ways to connect over a land bridge right there from 9th Street. You know how you go up 9th Street up to the stadium and down. Connect that all through a land bridge right there to make it one accessible straight into the downtown. This sounds like a great plan. However... This could have some problems. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about my history here. I used to live in Chicago. I went to school in Bourbonnais, Illinois. Went to college there. And I had the privilege of living in Chicago and Bourbonnais while I was a graduate student at Loyola University of Chicago, working on a PhD, um, of being there when the Chicago Bears rebuilt Soldier Field. Now, you may not be be aware of all that went on to, with this in Chicago. Chicago did not want the Bears to build a new stadium. They wanted them to stay on the site. They also didn't want them to tear down Soldier Field. They wanted the Bears to continue to basically play in Soldier Field. So the city of Chicago did what only the city of Chicago could do. And by the way, they did the exact same thing to the Cubs is they decided to make Soldier Field a landmark, a historical landmark in the city, which means the Bears would be unable to tear down the stadium and build a new one. So here's what the Bears did. 
They realized that the historical landmark part was only on the columns that surrounded the stadium. So they decided we will tear down the entire stadium and build a new one inside the columns and we will call it Soldier Field. So as a young graduate student, I had the privilege of driving from Bourbon A up I-57, connect onto I-94, drive onto Lakeshore Drive, go all the way up to Loyola's Lakeshore campus for my courses. While you do that, you when you get onto Lakeshore Drive, you hit a major left, at least at this time, you hit a major left, you go right past Soldier Field, right back past the, the Shedd Aquarium, right past the Adler Planetarium, up through Lakeshore, right by Navy Pier. And every day I got to watch as they built this stadium inside these columns. The finished product, project, product of the entire project came to be known as the Spaceship. Because it literally looked like a spaceship, a big glass mirror-looking spaceship, had descended and landed inside what used to be Soldier Field. Now, I tell you this story because during the time that this stadium was being built, the Chicago Bears had to play at an alternate site, much like the Browns will have to play at an alternate site for up to possibly three seasons. In the one season I remember, Bears, I lived in Bourbon A, I remind you that Bourbon A is about halfway, just, just under halfway between Chicago and where the Bears were playing their games in at the University of Illinois in Champaign. So Bourbon A, Kiki Bradley, that's just about halfway between Chicago and Champaign. So every Sunday we'd have this mountain, this, this, this convoy of cars coming down on the highway through the city. So if you wanted to on Sunday morning that if you were skipping church, <gasps> you people from Bourbon A will know what I'm talking about. If you skip church and you decided to go out for breakfast or if you decided to get gas or go to the mall or hit up the local Barnes & Noble while you were there, you were just out of luck. Because, <laughs> because there were Bears fans everywhere. And Bourbon A was known to these Bears fans because the university I taught at at the time, Olivet Nazarene University, actually is the site of the Bears' off-season training site. I mean, they leave for training camp back to... I believe they're in Lakeshore. Um, no, Forest Park, I believe, is where they're at. I'm not sure exactly. But <clears throat> for a while, they're training in Bourbon A, right there on all the campus of Olivet Nazarene University. So all these Bears fans are familiar with the town, and the town was just flooded. But should you make the trek down to Champaign and go to the University of Illinois campus, you went and you saw a football game that was a professional football game that felt very displaced. The team was playing in a college stadium, much like we're going to assume the Browns are going to play uh, at the Horseshoe in Ohio State, but that's not a given. I mean, maybe they could play at the Fawcett Bowl at the Hall of Fame. But if should the, maybe they're going to play where uh, the Columbus Crew plays. I mean, the Haslam's have an in with that team. 
But should they play these, every single game will feel like a road game. They will feel like they are playing 17 road games for three straight seasons. And I remember when the Bears did this, and finally when the new Soldier Stadium was completed and people asked them what they thought, they said, a lot of the players said, I'm just happy to have a home. Now, mind you, at Loyola Chicago, our uh, mascot are the Ramblers. The Loyola University of Chicago Ramblers. because They were the Ramblers because they had no home training facilities. And hence, they were always on the road. And so when this project starts, the Browns, we should call them the Cleveland Ramblers. Because they're going to be playing, just doing some quick math here, 51 home, or 51 road games. 51 straight road games. And I'm going to tell you, fans lose interest. Fans get sick of looking at this. So, Browns fans, we're going to have to put on our our really support the team look here. But maybe if they're at Ohio State, maybe that'll help re-energize the fan base in Columbus. And maybe the team in Columbus will rally around them and it'll end up being a good thing. But it's going to be rough on the team. It's going to take its toll on the team. It's going to take its toll on the players. Always being playing road games. So, look, I've been through this, Browns fans. I've seen the Bears rebuild, quote-unquote, their stadium at Soldier Field. And uh, when this happens, it will be a long and arduous trek. But from looks of the plans, if you guys haven't had a chance to look at the renderings of the plans, it looks gorgeous. And if it looks anywhere near what, what that looks like, uh, the down the North Shore area and the, the Bland Bridge, the downtown, if it looks anything near that, it will be well worth the possible three years of road games. So dig in for the long haul, fans. It's going to be a long one on that. Speaking of the Browns, they are back in Berea. That's right. The Browns showed up yesterday. I'm recording this on Tuesday night. But they showed up Monday for <clears throat> phase one of off-season workouts. Now, phase one of off-season workouts are basically weightlifting and team meetings. So this is good for the Browns, those particularly who showed up, because now the defense gets to meet Jim Schwartz, gets to have meetings with Jim Schwartz, gets to find out what no-nonsense, double-gap defensive line playing Jim Schwartz is all about. So this is a good thing. Bubba Ventrone will start to install his special teams programs. And it'll be interesting to hear what anybody has to say about Bill Musgrave and his influence on the offense I'm hoping that the Browns will come out to a more spread-style offense as opposed to three deep, three tight ends and 15 running backs in the backfield. Uh, you know, run the ball, pounding ground, three yards, and a pile of dust. Um, not conducive to winning, uh, the analytics tell us. But <clears throat> even though all that's going on, the most exciting part of the Browns returning to Berea is not the off-season workouts. It's not. The meetings with Musgrave and Ventrone and Jim Schwartz. Oh no, the best part of the Browns coming back are the outfits. The crazy outfits that players wear to walk back in to the state, to walk back into to camp. So let's just go over a list of what were people wearing. So here's my list of the most interesting outfits. 
Number one, Miles Garrett with the too, too cool for school gray sweatshirt and sunglasses. Miles Garrett looked like Joe Cool out there. I've been here before. I've done this before. I'm doing it again. I'm better than all y'all. I'm Miles Garrett. Not to be outdone, Jakeem Grant showed up wanting to make a statement. And you can find all these pictures on clevelandbrowns.com. 32 pictures of players walking in. He comes out with a red matching hoodie sweatpant combo that looks like it has angry cartoon characters on it. I had to take a double and triple take on this because I couldn't figure it out. They look like angry Funko Pops on his outfit. So if somebody knows what this is, please leave please leave a comment and let me know. The best part of that outfit, though, was I believe he had sandals or flip-flops on with, with socks. So Jakeem Grant making the statement with the angry cartoon characters. David Njoku arrived with his shirt on. So for you fans who are used to seeing him shirtless, just good to let you know that he did show up with a shirt this time. And he looked happy and excited to be there. Probably knows he's going to get thrown the ball more and has to block less. So good for David Njoku. On the other hand, Alex Wright looked up or showed up and he had a look on his face that's like, it's Monday. Leave me the elf alone. And we've all been there on Monday, right? We don't want to be here. I'm sure Alex Wright wanted to be there. But he had this look like, leave me alone. I don't want to be here. I'm here because I have to be, which he doesn't. It's voluntary. But good for him for showing up. But he did not look like a happy camper. Or maybe, maybe he was there to work. And maybe he didn't want anything to do with pictures. I don't know. Cade York, Corey Bohorquez, and Charlie Hewitt arrived. And they got their picture all together. Right, They look like three frat boys getting ready to hit the town. And you know what? Why not? Why not dress up like a frat boy getting ready to hit the town? It's not like they play football. They go out there and they kick the ball. Cade York goes out, kicks field goals. Sometimes he makes them. Corey Corey Bohorquez goes out there and punts the ball. And sometimes he does not out-punt his coverage. And Charlie Hewitt just snaps the ball, and he's a protected player on the field, so nobody's allowed to hit him either. So, you know what? This is a party for them. They're not doing anything. Let's go. Let's go party. Wyatt Teller arrived. He looked exactly like you would expect him to. Hoodie, sweats, ball cap, and a look that said, I had to stop hunting for this crap. He looked angry. He looked like he had to stop hunting. Don't mess with Wyatt Teller. Wes Martin arrived wearing a pair of shorts. Mind you, it was in the 30s in Cleveland when this happened. Wearing a pair of shorts with a look on his face like he's about to start some mess. He had a grin, that smile that says, I'm here to be starting trouble. So watch out for Wes Martin. Might make the team, might not make the team, but I feel like he's going to start some trouble regardless. Now, now I'm going to arrive at my personal two favorite outfits. All right. Because these outfits, when I saw them, I had to stop and say, what the elf is that? The first one belongs to Juan Thornhill. Juan Thornhill showed up in what looks like a turquoise velvet jumpsuit. 
I mean, it looked like a one-piece velvet turquoise thing on his body. It was tight-fitting. It was styling. It was profiling. But my God, only, only someone who is skinny could wear that thing because I have no idea how anybody other than Juan Thornhill is wearing that thing. Jumpsuit, turquoise velvet. Can't make it up. Go look it up. But the number one outfit of the arrival of players for phase one belongs to Tony Fields. When Tony Fields showed up, he straight up looked like Carlton from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I can't, I can't, I can't lie. Go look this up. He looks like Carlton from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And the only thing missing is that crazy dance that Carlton does. But you know what? Maybe he'll give us the crazy dance. Maybe he'll hear this podcast and decide, when I score a touchdown this season on defense, I'm going to give us the Carlton dance because I look like Carlton from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So give those things a look. All right, everybody, it's time to pay the bills. And on the other side, we'll talk about the AFC North and what's happening around the NFL. Welcome back, paying the bills. All right. Let's time to look around what's going on in the NFL. AFC North happenings. Odell Beckham Jr. had his press conference in Baltimore. If you haven't had a chance to watch that, I'm I'm here to give you the details. Let me tell you, this was something. But you have to know what you're looking for. So let me clue you in on some of the things he said. The first quote that I took from this press conference was when Odell Beckham Jr. said, quote, I was an underdog all my life. I wasn't the number one receiver in my class. I was a four-star recruit. I didn't have it easy coming up. I've been the underdog my whole life. I've been counted out, and I'm still counted out, unquote. I don't know of a single person that has ever counted out Odell Beckham Jr., Odell Beckham Jr. was a highly recruited athlete coming out of high school, went to LSU, was a top 15 pick. I mean, he was the 12th overall pick in the infamous, infamous 2014 NFL draft. He was drafted as the third wide receiver, so maybe that's where he's coming from. He was the third wide receiver picked in that draft behind Sammy Watkins at number four, and yes, that was the pick the Browns traded out of, and Mike Evans at number seven. Now, to keep this in perspective, he may have been the third wide receiver picked, but he was also taken in that draft before Aaron Donald, Brandon Cooks, D. Ford, Demarcus Lawrence, the Browns' Joel Batonio, Devontae Adams, Allen Robinson, and his buddy Jarvis Landry. So I'm not sure that Odell Beckham Jr. was disrespected in any way coming out of the NFL draft. And as he came into the league, and you know, he made his famous catch in New York, he was traded from New York after heavily criticizing his quarterback, Eli Manning, for not giving him the ball. He was traded for 
the 17th overall pick from Cleveland, Jabril Peppers, who was also a first round pick, and a third round pick. Now, that is a tremendous amount of picks for a wide receiver getting ready to go on a second contract. Not sure where he's been disrespected in his life. And we all know the story. OBJ didn't want to be in Cleveland, didn't want to come to Cleveland, did everything he could to get out of Cleveland, including having his dad publicly criticize his quarterback. But he's the underdog, right? He's the one that people doubt. He's the one that's disrespected. He's the one that everyone thinks is doing a bad job, can't play wide receiver, has been not a good wide receiver in his life. So I guess all I have to say to this is it's good to see that Odell Beckham Jr. is still the number one mental head case in the NFL. And then there's Eric DaCosta in this thing. Now, every time I see Eric DaCosta, I think Eric DaCosta looks like a bald Ray Liotta. Ray Liotta, may he rest in peace. But Eric DaCosta, I swear, you could have, like, dug up Ray Liotta, cut his hair off, completely bald, and that is Eric DaCosta. He sounds like Ray Liotta. He looks like Ray Liotta. He is like the bald Ray Liotta, like running the Ravens. All right, moving on. OBJ said that signing with Baltimore was not about the money. The reason he signed with Baltimore was because they wanted him, and it was about being wanted. So let me clue you in on something. When a player says, I want to go where I'm wanted, that is code for, I'm going to the place where I got the most money. That's all that is. NFL teams show their, quote, love, unquote, to a player by paying them. NFL teams show a player they love them by paying them. Now, let's talk about Lamar Jackson in this process for a second, because Lamar Jackson exemplifies this point. To an average person like you and me, this makes little sense, right? We see Lamar Jackson turning down $32 million, which is his tag right now. And we think this guy's crazy. Dude, you're making $32 million. After you make this money, you won't have to work again at all, period. Just take the money. You know, take the money, dopey. But that's not the way it works in the NFL. Lamar wants to feel the love. He wants to believe that the Ravens want him to be in Baltimore. He wants them to want him. He wants to feel the love. And that love is expressed through money. The actual amount of money isn't important, right? Because the tag money, the $32 million, right? That's the bare minimum, right? That's That message says to me, we're going to pay you what we have to pay you to be here. Lamar doesn't want the, I want the lowest number possible, because you have to pay me this to keep me around. Lamar wants the show me the love. Show me that you believe in me money. 
He wants the, I'm the best quarterback in the NFL, and I want the Ravens to believe that I'm the best quarterback in the NFL. And the way the Ravens show me I'm the best quarterback in the NFL is to pay me like the best quarterback in the NFL. That's what Lamar Jackson wants. Lamar Jackson wants what Odell Beckham Jr. has on that stage, right? Odell Beckham Jr. is up there. They want me. They showed me they want me. I mean, they paid this guy $15 million guaranteed after having two ACL surgeries, hasn't had a Pro Bowl year since 2016, hasn't really been good for a while, is no longer a number one receiver, is now a number two receiver, and they're paying him out the yin-yang to be a number one receiver. This is destined to fail, by the way, but, you know, it might work for a little bit, but we'll see. Lamar Jackson wants what OBJ has. He wants the love, and that love is the money. And right now, the question for Lamar Jackson isn't, you know, the money. It's show me you want me. Pay me what I I deserve. Not because I demand it or I want the money, but I want the money because I'm worth that money. I am worth the money, the guaranteed contract. So OBJ is up there. Oh, it's all about the love. It's all about they show me they want me. It's show me I'm the underdog. But in reality, that love is shown by money. And by not giving Lamar Jackson that money, he is the Ravens are disrespecting Lamar Jackson. And Lamar Jackson wants none of it. So it'll be interesting. But what OBJ has on that on that stage is exactly what Lamar Jackson wants. He wants the love. And then, after all that, OBJ looks in the camera and says, Lamar, just come on back home. Come back to the Ravens. Let's play together. I mean, in all real honesty, though, OBJ needs Lamar Jackson to come back because who's going to throw him the ball? I mean, we saw what happens to OBJ when he doesn't get the ball. He starts to sulk, complain. His dad starts tweeting videos. And we saw how OBJ performed as a number one wide receiver in Cleveland, and he is not a number one receiver anymore, but he will be on the Ravens. Teams will work to take away OBJ when they play the Ravens because there is nobody else. I mean, there's some speed people. There's technically or theoretically other players, but there's nobody to worry about. And OBJ, even with all the surgeries and the seasons and whatnot on that team. He's still the number one. So personally, I'm going to get the popcorn like the meme and start eating it and just wait and see what happens because about two or three games in maybe longer depends if Lamar Jackson's there. He's going to stop getting the ball. They're going to have to start getting creative to get him the ball. He's not going to get the ball. And then guess who's going to show up. That's right. Basket case OBJ is going to come out of the closet. His dad's going to start throwing fits. And then we get to watch it all melt down. And at the end of the presser, Ray Liotta gets out there, a.k.a. DaCosta, into the presser with the comment, the right player, the right city, the right team at the right time. Interesting. I mean, I've been to Baltimore, sadly. I've been to Baltimore like three or four times. I'm telling you, Baltimore is the right city for nothing. Unless you go to the Inner Harbor, that place is dangerous. I'm just telling you. I went there for an international kung fu tournament and was told 
by the grandmaster of the tournament not to go anywhere except the inner harbor and these are trained killers telling you not to go anywhere near that city the right city for obj the right team at the right time yeah whatever let's see what Obel, odell beckham jr's dad has to say about that speaking of that area just down the road are the washington commanders they were in the news this week as the owner dan snyder will be selling the washington commanders for wait for it six billion dollars Keep that in mind that the Haslam Sports Group had just bought one quarter of the Milwaukee Bucks for $3.25 billion. Dan Snyder also bought the team for $800 million and selling for $6 billion. Amazing people. Amazing the money that goes on. But who is he selling the team to? Well, looks like he's going to be selling the team to a group of businessmen led by John Harris. You may recall that Harris was the owner behind the infamous three-season tanking effort put forth, put forth by the Philadelphia 76ers known as The Process. Now, if you're not familiar with The Process, this is when the Philadelphia 76ers tanked from 2013 to 2016 in an attempt to land a generational talent. Now... It got so bad in the NBA that other owners started complaining that the 76ers were so bad that every time the Sixers came into town, their team would lose money at the gate and in concessions because nobody wanted to come see them. This is who's buying the commanders. Now, the Sixers did get their generational talent in the form of Joel Embiid. Now, good name for a good guy, right? Joel Embiid. By the way, also, this ownership group includes a current member of the Los Angeles Dodgers ownership group, Magic Johnson. So Magic Johnson will be coming into the NFL. He will be assimilated by the Borg. Ah, the Borg. I have not mentioned this yet. The Borg. Now, I call the NFL owners the Borg after the Star Trek characters. If you guys aren't familiar with Star Trek, the next generation, there are these aliens that fly around in a cube is a spaceship as a cube and they assimilate people they're like robotic people hybrid machine people right and their famous tagline is we're the borg resistance is futile uh, surrender prepare to be assimilated i view this as the nfl ownership group the nfl ownership from the very beginning of the nfl have always worked as a collective just as the borg have the borg are one giant collective Okay, they don't think apart. They're like a beehive and these cube ships are like beehives. And this is how the ownership groups in the NFL work. There are 32 owners or 32 ownership groups and they act as a unit. Okay, they don't act independently. They act as a unit. And when they need to do something, they send the Goodell bot out. That's Roger Goodell. Mentioned him last time. They send the Goodell bot out as their voice. He's like the Locutus of Borg, right? He's the Goodell of, of, of the Borg people. <clears throat> so the Goodell bot goes out and speaks for the Borg. Except in my version of my life, the tagline for the Borg owners are, We are the Borg. Resistance is futile. Surrender and prepare to give us your money. These people are ruthless. They have no feelings. 
They don't care, and they will take your money, just like the Borg do in Star Trek. Except the Borg don't want your money, they want to assimilate your technology. So Magic Johnson will be assimilated into the Borg, along with John Harris. But I feel like all the NFL is doing is trading one devil for the next, right? John Snyder, as you, Dan Snyder, excuse me, Dan Snyder, as you know, has four active investigations or lawsuits against him. The first being the Mary Jo White investigation. This is the investigation into the claims of harassment by former employees. This is the one, if you remember, where the Goodell bot went to Congress and was saying that the NFL would be transparent in all their findings and that when, uh, um, can't think of the lady who was doing the, the investigations. When she was done, maybe I can find it. When she was done with her investigation, that they were going to release the investigation and it was going to be completely transparent. And then guess what happened? Well, the Borg decided they don't want to be transparent, so they never released the findings. This prompted Congress to send Mary Jo White out there, former SEC chairwoman, to do her own investigation. And so right now she is actively investigating claims of harassment in the workplace under Dan Snyder's uh, regime there in Washington. Uh, White's investigation apparently is stalling per Ben Standig of The Athletic because Dan Snyder refuses to talk to her. There are also in <coughs> ongoing independent investigations by the Maryland and Washington, D.C. Attorney General's offices into financial irregularities over the refusal of the Washington ownership to refund security deposits for tickets. Apparently they got PCLs, uh, personal uh, seat licenses, uh, PSLs, I say PC, PSLs, and other deposits for season tickets, and then refused to refund, you know, refund the uh, deposits when they needed to. There's also a bank fraud investigation into Dan Snyder apparently taking out a $55 million loan from Bank of America, in, in which case he did not inform all the shareholders in the Washington Redskins that they were doing this. So the minority shareholders, the commanders, the minority shareholders of the commanders are now suing Snyder over bank fraud. Uh, so now Snyder is leaving and Josh, the process Harris, is taking his place. Josh Harris, too, will be assimilated. So I truly feel sorry for fans in Washington. As a fan of a team that had an owner who picked a player on the advice of a homeless person. As a fan of a team who went through a similar process here in Cleveland. I really feel your pain, Washington Commanders fans. But in the end, have fun with the process, because what else are you going to do? You're going to have Dan Snyder around? All right. Well, that wraps us up for this episode of What the Elf Was That podcast. Thank you for listening to What the Elf Was That. Please like, subscribe, and tell all your friends to listen, because we'd like to make some cash off these podcasts. Clearly, I have a personality disorder and need all the help I can get. So please help me. Smash that like and subscribe. You can also follow me, Joel Cade, on Facebook. Look for Fidel Castro. If you know, you know. 
And on Twitter, at the left guard. Be sure to check out my articles on Dog Pound Daily. All right, everybody, that's it till next time. Keep asking, what the elf was that?